When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Drill Down, the business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is Friday, May 7. Just ahead, a look at how Bitcoin is driving Square sales, but not really driving Square profits. And Roku is targeting its users. Is that creepy? And we'll drill down on the prospects of an Airbnb comeback with Lee Drogan, the CEO of Estimize. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's era.com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, and TuneIn. Oh my goodness, I'm out of breath. Hit that subscribe button and catch every show. And remember to join The Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram, at DrillDownPod. Link up with us on LinkedIn and check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what companies you want to talk about. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down, where we dig deep and explain the business ideas driving some stocks on the move. Our editor, Ben Wilson, is with me. Ben, lots of news today. I'm really excited to hear what's going on in the world today. All right, well, there's a couple of important stories I want to focus on here. First, obviously, the employment numbers came out today. Uh, U.S. non-farm payrolls added just 266,000 jobs. Now, remember, we're still 7 million below where we were before the pandemic. So the economists just got this number wrong. They thought there'd be a million jobs added. Well, why were the economists so wrong? Well, I think the, the you know, the economy is just not coming back the way that they thought it was. Maybe the inflation that we've been talking about in this show with so many companies talking about inflation isn't showing up so much uh, in, with this completely surging economy. You know, remember, uh, restaurants, hospitality, hotels starting to reopen. That was the only strong part about this report. But manufacturing, not too strong. Maybe that's because of the chip shortages in Detroit, which we've been talking about quite a bit. And remember, schools are still closed for much of the time in much of the country. And that keeps people from going back to work. Uh, and that may have showed up in these bad numbers. Now, there's also a counter to this, uh, copper prices hitting an all-time high. What's so important about copper prices going up? Well, copper, you know, they call it Dr. Copper. It is seen as kind of the chief indicator of future economic production. So copper prices hitting $10,417 a ton in London. That's the biggest market, uh, global market for copper. Uh, prices up more than 30% this year. They've doubled from the lows of March a year ago. And copper sales are almost always seen as a sign of strong manufacturing activity about to happen. So despite the slowdown in semiconductors, despite the economic numbers we saw from U.S. employment today. Uh, Dr. Copper is telling us there are good times ahead. And finally, Baker Hughes. Baker Hughes comes up with a weekly number of the rig count, how many oil rigs are active in the U.S. Uh, and the bottom line is they're just a little more active than they were the previous week and the same and last month. So 344 oil rigs, 103 gas rigs, total rig count 448 
versus 440 at the end of last week. So a slight improvement, again, suggesting an expectation of an economic pickup. Corey, what are you looking at today? All right, big deal with the high-flying stock, Bill.com. That's been on fire. The stock has doubled in the last year, and it's up 17% today alone. All right, so this company, uh, Bill.com, is a Silicon Valley-based company, and this is a small business digitization play. Um, It helps small businesses manage their billing and payments and accounts receivable. So is that like QuickBooks? It actually interfaces with QuickBooks. It's one of their partners. This really replaces paper checks for a lot of small businesses. I mean, they say that 90% of the companies they go into are using paper checks for all their payments. They replace that. They help manage the payment structure. They let vendors find out when they're going to get paid so they're not calling the CFO, bothering those people to try to find out when the check's coming. It's all kind of an open platform and a digital platform. Small businesses, as we know, well, everyone has been forced to digitize during the uh, the COVID pandemic, right, whether it's kids on Zoom or, yes, small businesses offering things for sale and other ways. And that's really uh, accelerated this move online. And you could see it in the numbers from this company. Uh, they really put up some big numbers um, in terms of growth, uh, as they have every quarter uh, since going public, and uh, announcing a big deal today on their morning call, uh, announcing that they're buying Um, a company called Divi. But really, when you talk about why their sales accelerated, uh, CEO Rene Lacarte talked about it on this morning's call, really about this notion of digitization. You know, what we're seeing uh, with customers uh, is that uh, there is a digital transformation wave that's happening. And we see more awareness out there, uh, both with our direct customers, our accountants, and our financial institution partners. And that's something that we referenced in, you know, in the call, in the script, uh, was, you know, one of our, our financial institution partners is, you know, being more aggressive about how they sell and market the solution. And we expect that to be across, you know, all of our partnerships as, you know, people are continuing to demand and ask for, you know, digital solutions. So, um, you know, I think it's something that we're excited about. We're really happy with the results on the customer acquisition this quarter. And, you know, again, it, it's uh, something that I think points to, you know, a general trend as well as the execution that the team's been able to deliver. So, Corey, you said they did a big merger today? Yeah, they bought Divi uh, and they paid... Uh, like I said, about $2.4 billion for Divi. Uh, it was mostly cash, $625 million in cash, uh, about $1.9 billion in stock. So that sort of helps them do it and not deplete all their cash. Divi is a Utah-based startup that uh, helps companies manage corporate card spending. So Bill.com described it as kind of the missing chunk of revenue. They said when they go into a customer and the customer is spending an accounting software, they get about 70% of that and somebody else gets about 30 that other part being credit card uh, management. Well, Divi is going to do that for them now, uh, and they think that's going to help them. You know, interestingly, the company finally showed some progress stemming their losses. Their EBITDA margins uh, came up a little, I guess. I mean, from negative 30 to negative 26%. So I guess that's good. Uh, you know, maybe getting towards profitability would be a good thing someday. We'll see. Yeah, that sounds like a generally good business strategy. <laughs> Go figure. Corey, what's your next drill down? Hey, let's look at Square. Square shares up big time uh, today and over the last year. So it looks like they're up 5% today, which is a lot with the market up less than 1%. But in the last year, shares are up 215%. Corey, what's in the news today? So, uh, yeah, 215% a year is a lot. Q1 earnings, 
And well, their earnings, right? The company has never been profitable in the first quarter, so earnings themselves is a good thing. But they've only turned a profit ever in the third and fourth quarters. This is the first time they've ever had first quarter earnings. Otherwise, it's been a sea of red ink for this company. But the story uh, is, you know, for this small business payment company was not about small business payments. The story was about Bitcoin. The revenues for this company were up 44% for the year on its main payments business. But if you add in their business of Bitcoin sales, Revenues were up 266% for the quarter, up to $5.1 billion. Now, CEO Jack Dorsey, you know, you wonder why, you know, he's part-time CEO, right? he's also the CEO of Twitter, but you wonder why they're doing this big Bitcoin business. And, and he says it's not for profitability, which is a good thing, and I'll get to that. But he says it's because the Bitcoin offering and even the recent acquisition of the music streaming service title is, makes sense, according to him. He says it's a way to give the customer everything they want on a single app. All these things um, provide more network effects for us. So people may come in because they received a payment from their family member or their friend. They download the app. Um, they can see that we, we sell Bitcoin. They can buy Bitcoin. They can send the Bitcoin to their friends who doesn't have the app yet, um, get it, and then they see that we have investings and so on and so forth. So. You know, we, we want to build a suite of services that are relevant to the audience we're trying to serve um, and are also critical to them um, and do it in one place where they don't have to really go anywhere else, just like our seller ecosystem. They don't have to hook anything else up. They don't have to download any other apps. They can do all the things that people want to do um, in, in this day and this present moment from one app. So that's his theory. I, I don't I don't know, Ben. What, I mean, what do you think? I mean... That's you can do everything you want on that app. Well, no, you can't. You can't wash your dog. You can't order your groceries. Like I don't know where this ends once he starts buying a music streaming service and selling Bitcoin. But uh, whatever, led to a lot of revenues for these guys. That's exactly what I was wondering. What selling Bitcoin and playing music have to do with the same app? They seem so far removed from each other. Agreed, and and it's also worth noting there was some reporting saying that their selling of Bitcoin was profitable uh, for Square. But I don't think it was. Uh, I, you know, I think the people who looked at that, the reporters who looked at that, don't know how to read an income statement because they sold uh, 3.51 billion in Bitcoin. It cost them 3.44 billion plus a Bitcoin impairment charge. The Bitcoin impairment charge was further down in the income statement. That was 20 million dollars. So, really, they had a negative gross margin on Bitcoin sales. It cost them money to sell Bitcoin. They lost money on the sale of Bitcoin. Uh, and that's before any of the other costs in running their business. So it, it's an interesting choice. And I think maybe it was a little bit misreported by some of the mainstream business press. Corey, you've got one more drill down? Yeah, let's look at Roku. Uh, ben, do you have a Roku that you use for your television streaming content? Absolutely. Roku is a very straightforward piece of programming for the TV. And other than their lack of having an HBO Max app for last year, it did everything we wanted it to do and did it simply. That's interesting because I'm not a Roku guy. Uh, I get all my stuff straight from my, straight into my TV. But uh, Roku share is up 13% today, 134% in the last year. And for context, 1,500% in the last five years. So yes, people have been home during COVID watching streaming TV. Shocker. 
We all knew that. But, and even in the first quarter of this year when COVID was raging, yes, that was still true. But I think what's interesting about uh, Roku is it's not just the sale of Roku units that they saw so much benefit from. It's the underappreciated advertising sales that Roku has been able to achieve. They call that, that segment of their business uh, media and entertainment or M&E. And Roku, you know, based in San Jose, right in the heart of Silicon Valley, they've been able to target their customers using artificial intelligence. And on this morning's conference call, CEO Anthony Wood, he emphasized that ability to use software to target their customers. I think that um, another sort of underappreciated fact is that a big driver of our uh, ad business in general, as well as obviously the M&E or media and entertainment portion, is our commitment to machine learning and AI. We've been investing heavily in uh, in building out that capability, and our, we have a strong internal commitment to world-class, best-in-class machine learning algorithms that helps us correctly target and as well and allocate our dis- our limited display inventory most effectively. So he's sort of emphasizing that they don't have all of the advertisement that goes on on their platform, but they got enough of it, and if they can really target their uh, viewers, they can give them the stuff that they want. I, I don't know if that's creepy or not. I tend to think that advertising that's really targeted is actually useful. All right, up next, we're going to talk to Lee Drogan, the CEO of Estimize. We're going to try to figure out if Airbnb, who saw fa- uh, sales fall 30% during COVID, has a chance at a big comeback. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes 40,000-plus investor events annually across 10,000-plus global equities. Learn more at era.com slash drilldown. And remember, join The Drill Down on Twitter at drilldownpod, Link up with us on LinkedIn and sign up for our newsletter on our website, bizpod.net. And we're back on the drill down. It's time to get a little more time digging into an interesting company in Airbnb. Lee Drogan joins us, the CEO of Estimize. First of all, Lee, thank you for joining us. And tell us, uh, what is Estimize? Estimize is a public-facing prediction platform where we allow both professional buy side and independent analysts, as well as everybody else uh, who participates in markets to come on and basically give us their earnings and revenue predictions for publicly traded companies. And then we uh, turn that into consensus and we let everybody see it completely for free. Okay, so you've got a sense of what people expect about a company, but you also do a lot of fundamental work to really understand uh, these companies, some of these companies, and Airbnb is one that has caught your attention. Let's take a 30,000-foot view first, sort of, and describe what the business is and maybe how it differs from a hotel business. Obviously, they don't own the properties. That's a pretty big difference. Yeah, Airbnb is a favorite business of mine. Uh, It goes all the way back to a very early stage of their company back in 2011 when we were just founding uh, the Estimize platform and, um, and they were just a startup. And the whole thing really starts with, I think, a misnomer, which is people like to call this space the sharing economy, but it's really not a sharing economy. Nobody's really sharing anything, right? Uh, what they're really doing, and the the broad kind of macroeconomic um, trend that's going on here is the concept of excess capacity utilization 
being filled by putting that capacity on a marketplace. So Airbnb is basically just a marketplace that connects people who have extra space, whether it be them going on vacation or having extra homes um, and wanting to rent out their space, or they may have an extra bedroom um, and people who want to travel to a specific place. Um, and it, it really is that second part that I think is more interesting than the first part, because the first part has been around for a very long time. We've had platforms like um, uh, like Couchsurfing. Uh, Couchsurfing.com has been around for you know several decades. Um, VRBO has been around for a long time. VRBO has been around for a long time. But it really is that second part. And it's that, and this is the really the kind of um, innovation that Brian Chesky, the founder of Airbnb, really kind of stumbled upon. And it's that the natural order of people traveling is not that you want to go and stay at a cookie cutter hotel. For basically all of human history, We've traveled to an individual's home or a small bed and breakfast, and it's really only because we couldn't get scale on that specific uh, setup that we had to create these, um, you know, kind of cookie cutter hotels so that traveling salesmen could know that they had a decent place to stay in each town. Um, and so connecting people to do this is a more scalable way to add inventory to a market that in many cases, we'll see big flexes in demand depending on the time of year, if there's an event happening in the city, if people so want to- So it's, it's the elasticity of it yes. that's interesting to you. Exactly. Yeah, I, I remember uh, covering you know Airbnb in the early days uh, when I was at Bloomberg, and uh, there was a moment when Marriott came out and they said they were going to add 13,000 rooms over the course of the next five years. And Brian Chesky came out that <laughs> day on Twitter and said, cool, I'm going to do that this month. Yeah, exactly. And then you're like, oh, this is a different – I think that's what makes a marketplace, uh, the marketplace business grow so quickly, right? I mean, marketplace businesses are, um, are the New York Stock Exchange, right, and the NASDAQ. Marketplaces are well known to us in so many, in so many venues. Amazon, a lot of Amazon sales is a marketplace. It's not Amazon taking on inventory. Um, uh, a well-known investor in Silicon Valley said to me once, eBay's marketplace is such a brilliant business idea, even Meg Whitman couldn't screw it up. Yep. He, he wasn't he wasn't a Meg Whitman <laughs> fan, but I, I just thought it was interesting to sort of say these businesses are so powerful because they're so easy because you don't have to take on the inventory. But I guess to your point, they're interesting because they can scale um, a lot of inventory, a lot of stuff to sell if there are a lot of buyers and also pull that down when there aren't. It's not just that. It's that once you have a specific set of inventory on a marketplace, and we've seen this with Amazon is the perfect example where they started with books and now they're literally everything. Once you start with a specific set of physical spaces, which, you know, really Airbnb started with a couple of apartments in San Francisco because there was an event going on where, you know, all the hotels were sold out. Once you have a, a, a huge uh, set of demand on your platform, the supply side will miraculously appear to facilitate uh, that demand. And so we've seen Airbnb go from those apartments to lake houses, to ski houses, to beach houses, to, you know, now they're going into backyards and experiences. And it's just the, the ability to expand the business when you are a marketplace versus kind of a built 
um, you know, a physical, you know, business where you literally have to spend the time and money to go build hotels is um, you're just going to get a lot more growth and investors are going to give you a higher multiple because of that. So, Lee, one might expect that, you know, uh, Airbnb's business was down a lot last year. Of course it was. It was down 30 percent last year, which is really bad for what was supposed to be a growth company growing at 30, growing, I should say, at 30 to 40 percent in previous years. But, you know, Marriott was down 61 percent last year. So they clearly dodged a bullet. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, my friend, the emoji coach, she, uh, she and her boyfriend abandoned their New York City apartments, took these spectacular, apparently, according to Instagram, wonderful uh, Airbnb rentals over the course of the year and went to spectacular places in South Carolina and then Sausalito into San Francisco Bay and then Park City. And then, you know, uh, they, they had this wonderful time. And you could sort of see, at least I could see through the Emoji Coach's wonderful pictures on Instagram, that, that uh, Airbnb had responded to this moment and the change in the world because of COVID in ways that uh, Marriott and Hilton and others could not. And that really is the magic of a marketplace, right? The marketplace is able to respond faster than a built business like Hilton is. Um, And, you know, the trend that Airbnb is on here intersects with several other big macro trends that are taking place, especially, you know, that kind of accelerated through the pandemic, such as remote working, you know, people wanting to potentially, um, you know, spend more time out in nature, um, you know, being able to, uh, you know, get together with family kind of independent of the rest of the world, which was something that was obviously useful here, you know, over the over the last year. Um, And so overall, you know, bouncing back from this trough is going to be easier for Airbnb. And we already see that in both the numbers that they've reported over the last quarter, as well as the forward looking numbers on the platform relative to even a platform like Booking and uh, and something like Hilton. Booking.com, a uh, big publicly traded company as well. Now, does it matter that Airbnb doesn't make money? I mean, I don't, I don't mean to sound like a, like, a, like an old fashioned, you know, old fart that doesn't understand growth. But there is a point at which it's cute that they've got this giant business of selling stuff for less than it costs. But at some point, they actually want to make money. So they've um, definitely exhibited the ability to produce both positive cash flow and EPS if they want to. And they, they had have, a positive year. They had one positive year. In, they had in one positive year. They've, they've had many positive quarters here. Um, if we look back at the S1. And, you know, what that basically says is that, you know, unlike some other uh, you know, negative EPS uh, technology companies, they can do it if they want to. And this this really is a choice. And sometimes we laugh at when a company says, oh, it's our choice. But this really is their choice, except for the last year where it obviously wasn't. What I'm focused on in terms of the growth and the valuation is that prior to the pandemic, if you look at the quarter before the pandemic started, they were growing about 35% year over year in terms of revenue at right. about half the revenue of booking.com and booking was doing about 7% year over year revenue growth. And so, you know, for that big gap in growth, you're getting a two times revenue multiple. And I think that that's pretty fair um, in terms of the valuation. They both traded about $90 billion uh, in market cap right now. And so if we look forward at kind of extrapolating that 30, 35% year over year growth, um, versus booking and where they're at, I, I mean, yeah, that would fall in line with 
kind of the revenue multiples that other companies growing like that deserve. Yeah, I mean, I, I I fundamentally don't really care about the the stock price trading. I'm not, you know, that I'm much more interested in how the business works. So, what is it that allows them has allowed them to grow at 30, 40 percent in previous years when their business wasn't really a new thing? Um, obviously, they they've got an opportunity to grow as as the uh, world gets back to work and the pandemic uh, recedes and the vaccines start to take hold. All things we expect and hope will happen. That allows allows them to grow back to where they were. But what allows them to grow even more going forward? So, you know, this might be a little bit of a controversial take, but I think that the discussion around Airbnb and how it affects society, how it affects rents in you know dense urban neighborhoods, how it affects people kind of overwhelming sometimes uh, rural areas or beach areas that, you know, can't handle the influx of, you know, the number of people who are now renting, you know, individual homes, all of this conversation in the media had a massively positive effect. It was free marketing for these guys, just as when Uber went up against the regulators and went up against the, you know, municipality of San Francisco, that was massively positive for them as well. So wait, so what you're saying is that my inability, my, my constant whining about the traffic in the Hamptons and, and, and the Montauk Highway and Highway 27 being jam-packed and I can't get anywhere is actually helping their business? Absolutely. Look, any press is good press and the word of mouth is just an incredibly strong thing for the growth of a, of a marketplace. And, you know, I, I just even amongst my friends and where we live out here right now in Whitefish, Montana – you go into the hockey locker room here and everybody's talking about the same thing. The town's going to be absolutely packed this summer. Who's coming to visit you? You know, which houses are people renting? It's, uh, you know, the, the word of mouth is an incredibly strong thing for this platform. And when the media kind of hops on these. Oh, here real, you go. Blaming me. Well, Blaming no, me. The, look, these are real issues, depending on which side you fall on from a, you know, uh, from whatever perspective, but um, Airbnb does have a significant impact on rents in dense urban neighborhoods, and they definitely are having an impact on um, neighborhoods like mine out here in the, you know, kind of getaway place in Montana. Um, and uh, that's a net positive for them. Um, the other interesting thing, you know, along those lines is when you think about the business you know, this really was in the mold of Uber, a move fast and break things strategy. And it's become more and more of a strategy for some companies, but they knew what they were doing was in, you know, in a sense illegal in many municipalities, but they went and did it anyway, because they felt that if they could get to scale, that there would be no way for those municipalities to stop them. And Brian Chesky was absolutely right. And not only was he right about that, but the pushback even helped the platform grow. This is back to your theory about bad publicity is good publicity. Well, uh, talk to me about what this means for cities, right? So we've had a big change uh, um, in certain cities where people really have backed away. They aren't working in those cities. It was a place where Airbnb probably had a lot of, certainly it's where the, only where they had their start in the city of San Francisco, where I am right now in our uh, fabulous studios here for the Business Podcast Network. But uh, we saw a lot of people leave cities for extended periods of time. Schools still aren't fully reopened, and we can probably expect another summer similar to the last 
um, is does that sort of hurt the places where they might grow? So the interesting thing is <clears throat> if you look at their last uh, earnings release and uh, and look through I the do. numbers, their average booking has actually gone up because the cost of renting a farmhouse or a lake house or a ski house on average is higher than renting an apartment in New York City or San Francisco, where so much of the demand was obviously before the pandemic. Um, and so their thought, and I, I do agree with this, is that if this has led to a further adoption of their platform for these purposes and brought more supply from those specific types of lodging online, then in the long term, that could be a very net positive for their business. That's an interesting take. I mean, obviously, I guess any opportunity. They also have already expanded, I think, in a lot of places internationally where they can um, get scale. Uh, it, it, you know, This isn't a sort of domestic story waiting for international expansion. That thing's already happened. Yeah, they're they're definitely all over the world now. Now, I think if you want to pick a you know a, a, a negative uh, catalyst, you know potentially, it's that you know we are seeing more protectionism from countries like China, uh, economic protectionism, and marketplaces are, are a perfectly easy place for them to basically promote an internal clone of something like Airbnb and then lock Airbnb out. Because it's very easy, in a sense, to shift the supply and the demand to, you know, a, a, an internal platform that the whatever country, you know, supports. So, you know, if we are looking at international expansion, I think that that's a risk for them um, in the long term. But even domestically, as we've seen, you know, here during the pandemic and coming out of it, there's really a lot of room for them to run. And management has always touted their ability to sell other stuff, experiences, what they like to call, quote, experiences, end quote is what I'd call it. Um, but they haven't uh, shown a lot of ability to do that. Um, what are your thoughts on, on the experience market that they hint that they want to get into? Yeah, look, it's been fits and starts. And this is uh, going on four or five years now that yeah. they've been kind of experimenting with this. And they haven't quite got it right yet. Look, I think in a macro sense, the experiential economy, especially coming out of the pandemic here, um, is, you know, geared up to grow at a tremendous pace. And it, it was even before. Um, but there were a lot of other entrants into this space, you know, multiple unicorn companies that were facilitating ticketing to different types of experiences and platforms that were facilitating different types of tours. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, did you, did you and, know and, of um, If Only? Yeah. Um, yeah, my yeah. friend uh, John Boris uh, was CEO of that, and they sold that to MasterCard, interestingly. Um, but it did seem like that was the hot thing. They got out of that. They literally got out of that right before the pandemic. But uh, it does seem like the that that's a place that Airbnb should have had more success already. Yeah, so an incredibly competitive environment, and it does seem like they never quite push the gas on fully investing in any one incarnation of that idea. And I think that's because they knew that they hadn't gotten it right yet. Um, now, you know, when it comes to Chesky, he's the kind of CEO that I think is um, diligent and, and smart enough that uh, when he feels they really have it right, he'll press the gas on it and they will get it right eventually. But up until now, it's been something that has they've kind of held out here like a carrot for investors saying someday, someday. 
but uh, haven't really, they, they don't really believe that they've got it right quite yet. So when you look for their growth going forward, do you look for it in their principal business of renting out, I don't know, uh, vacation kinds of things or places where people go away? Do you look for business travels return as the big thing that comes back for them? Or it is it that sort of layered on experience of experiences? Can I really use that word twice in a sentence? Well, I just did. <laughs> I think there's a lot of room organically for the, the, this marketplace to grow based on just what it does right now. Um, on top of all of the other potential businesses that they can add, what I'm really interested in seeing is what they do regarding potential acquisitions or just trying to go steal the demand from a platform like HipCamp, right? Obviously, a more niche kind of, uh, you know, set of um, experiences and supply, but, uh, you know, something that is growing very quickly, even though it would be a very small percentage of Airbnb. So do they choose to go and attempt to develop all these little niche markets within their platform, kind of like Amazon did, or do they go and try and buy these other platforms kind of like Booking has, um, you know, and, and just kind of bolt them on? And that'll be a really interesting um, thing to watch, you know, uh, Chesky's strategy for. Interesting stuff. Lee Drogan of Estimize, uh, really glad to have your time. This is a, 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 an interesting company. We're glad you spent the time to learn it and then share that with us. Thanks for having me. And let me ask one last thing before we go. Uh, how should people be in touch with Estimize, follow what you do and follow your thoughts? Yeah, they can go to Estimize.com and uh, participate in the platform completely for free. And they can follow me on Twitter at L Drogan. Great stuff. All right, Lee, we'll tweet you out as well on uh, Drill Down Pod and me at Corey TV. Thank you for your time. And we're going to talk on the Drill Down Bite uh, when we come right back. But I'm going to tell you, interestingly, what percentage of people surveyed by Airbnb had already made plans for travel over the course of the next year in March when the pandemic was maybe at its worst? And that will be the Drill Down Bite after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, the equity platform with event intelligence and insights for fundamental investors. Seamlessly connect to any earnings call and take advantage of ERA's AI-powered tools. Work faster and smarter with ERA.com. And please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, tune in, subscribe to us, hit that button and catch every show. And remember to join the Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. Link up with us on LinkedIn and sign up for our newsletter on our website, bizpod.net. Okay, now it's time for the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Ben, I told you that uh, Airbnb did a survey in March, right? Where did the kind of, we're all just reeling from the second wave of the pandemic. And they asked people how many had already booked or are currently planning to travel, and they found that 54% of the people they surveyed had already booked or are currently planning to travel in 2021. That includes 57% of 18 to 29-year-olds, and the 30 to 49-year-old set, that, uh, that uh, millennial and Gen X set, 60% had already booked or planned some travel. Well, that doesn't surprise me at all. That is very exciting for Airbnb. I can imagine a lot of people are very much looking forward to their vacations. Uh, oh, vacations. Those are for people that aren't doing startups. All right, but uh, we're going to have a great time uh, next week. I'll have a lot of big earnings and some big economic news. But I want to thank everyone for listening to the first week of The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. The show is edited by Ben Wilson. Thank you, Ben. Uh, you're welcome. 
It's my pleasure. <laughs> Isaac Webster's our executive producer. Maggie Renshaw's our senior producer. Alicia Alban, our chief of staff, and she's awesome. Samantha Fennell, our head of ad sales, and she's also awesome. The theme song, Moving Average, is by Romeo and the Paperclips. Thanks to Yorn and the fantastic crew at Shack 15. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network. Three, two, one.